Welcome to Urban Foundry. All opinions expressed by Andrew Urban, Paige O'Neill, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Collier's International, Inc. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Collier's International may maintain positions in the properties discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to the Urban Foundry podcast, your go-to source for urban real estate news and conversations. I'm Andrew Urban. And I'm Paige O'Neill, and we will be your co-hosts as we explore the future of downtown real estate. This This is Urban Foundry. And welcome to Urban Foundry. Today, we have a very exciting guest in the studio. Megan Tooman is the Vice President of Operations for Doris. After earning her MS in Applied Statistics, she taught statistics courses at Purdue University and IUPUI while also maintaining her own successful consulting business, Statistical Research Solutions. As VP of Operations, Megan ensures at the highest level that Doris pioneers and produces innovative research, presenting and communicating them in a manner which establishes the company as an industry leader. She has a BA from St. Mary's College in Statistics and Actuarial Mathematics in French and an MS in Statistics from Purdue University. Megan, Welcome to Urban Foundry. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, thanks for being here. Happy Friday. Oh my gosh, happy Friday. It cold. is. Cold. It's getting cooler. Just a little bit. I mean, it's about time though. It's mid-November. I mean, all good things <laughs> have to come to an end, That's right? True. That's that true. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Although, you know, it's funny. I went to my tailor recently and I had a bunch of like, every season I like turn over and do things like adjusted or new things I added to the wardrobe. And she's like, I can get this to you, but it, I think you, you'll be okay for a little while. All the flannels and all the tweeds and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm waiting on my delivery still. Uh-oh. Always looking the sharp. The time has come. So true. I know. <laughs> yeah. I'm in my Friday casual. I was like, uh-oh, what's I'm Andrew like, going to be wearing? Where's Waldo over here yeah. in my striped red sweater? I was thinking that. I, I know. Every that. time I wear it, I think of that, but. It's still one of my favorites. Donald Brenton Stripe is a classic. I know. And we were just talking about France a little bit. Mm-hmm. Obviously very French. Mm-hmm. And then Maybe. you have the American Chuck Taylors, which are not very French. So it's Franco-American today. No, I'm just really confused over here. Yeah. <laughs> <My> <laughs> so Megan, tell us a little bit more about Doris and how you got involved. Yeah. So Doris is a workplace research company, stands for Design Oriented Research for Impactful Solutions. So my name's not Doris, but uh, I work for a company called Doris. As my introduction mentioned, I had a consulting business uh, for about six years while I was still teaching. And I was given or recommended to Sam at Doris to help them start their quantitative arm of the business back in 2016. And so I had a student help me kind of get them up and running a little bit. And then 2018, 2019 rolls around, Doris is even is grown. And Sam came to me and was like, hey, we're looking for somebody to help us with our quant. We really, you know, we were looking for X, Y, and Z. And so I left and I'm looking at all my students trying to figure out who should work for Doris. And, you know, I'm trying to be pretty particular. And then one night I was like, well, I think that should be me. Wait, I was like, <laughs> why am I handing this Why off? am I? Yeah, I think I'm that person. Yeah. So I went back to Sam and I was like, I raised my hand as, as tribute. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so that's how I got involved. I started as their consultant and then just pretty much never left. So before you got the t- tap on the shoulder, right? What was your experience with workplace? I mean, you were in statistics, right? Like that probably was like so far from so your typical far. view, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and it's interesting. I was thinking about this on the way over. I was like, you know, I don't know that before 
Doris or my job now, I actually even really cared about workplace or space or thought about it. You know, I just was like, oh, data. I can work with any data. I can work with veterinary data, medical data, right? Not to be a stereotypical master's in statistics, but that's generally the stereotype, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Any data is good data, so just give it to me and I can work with it. And so I think what enticed me was this idea of connecting it with qualitative research. So Sam has a background in qualitative design research. And so I always took a lot of pride in being able to communicate tougher subjects like statistics traditionally in a way that's really approachable to people. And that's a value alignment with Doris. So they really take a lot of pride in their qualitative research. So I wanted to make sure that when we partner those two together, that we can be better together than we are apart. It just so happens that we're applying it to workplace. So That's pretty cool. So talked about the transformation of how you guys started to do that. And then, you know, this is all pre-pandemic, so we'll yeah. go into what happened after, but like leading up to it, what was that? How do you interwine those two? Yeah. Work so, through the friction and the connections of that. Yeah. So friction's a great word because coming from academia and the scientific world, there's an element of ego that comes <laughs> in academia that's like, this is the right way, this is the only way, and this is the scientific way, right? And qualitative methodology, I think, is going to the same end goal, but maybe takes a little bit different route. But recognizing that we're better together as opposed to apart, I think really just increases our power. So, you know, traditionally when you see reports or you know, statistics and Excel spreadsheets. It's kind of boring graphs and an Excel spreadsheet. And we take a lot of pride in taking the difficult interpretation out of it. Mm -hmm. We do the interpretation for you. And the power is in being able to make a decision from the data. Right. Right. You don't need to know how to do the statistics, but if you can use the information to then make a decision that impacts your business, that becomes really powerful. Mm -hmm. Actionable and impactful, right? Yeah. Exactly. And more necessary now, maybe than it ever has been before. Right. Well, and there's a lot of, you know, we could talk about hard data. We have a lot of it here today. And we also have a lot of qualitative things and that are impacting the hard data. Yeah. So trying to sort through how those fit together has got to be pretty interesting. Yeah. So COVID hits, right? You, you made this move to workplace consulting. Mm-hmm. You guys kind of get your sea legs after a few years and kind of have a thing going. Then you're like, all right, you know, we've worked through some friction. We kind of have a methodology. COVID hits and everyone questions. Yeah. A paradigm shift, right? Yeah. What the hell the workplace means? Well, it's interesting. First and foremost, we, you know, we study office space traditionally and Mm -hmm. spring 2020, our pipeline was full and then suddenly everything cancels, right? And so we have to figure out, is this the end? Is this the end of Doris, right? (laughs) And very quickly, because of everybody questioning and trying to figure it out in survival, we were like, no, actually, we have a really unique opportunity here to help inform in a way that is impactful. It is people-centered. It's getting at the heart of, I think, what a lot of people look at myopically, but really trying to get a holistic view Mm -hmm. of what's happening. So we did some more trend-based research, which is not really what we do um, in 2020 and 2021. And now we're getting back into our into the swing of things. So. That's great. Yeah. So what have you guys learned as a firm? And talk maybe a little bit about the sectors that you guys typically touch on mm. 
And, and what are the, some of the macro trends that are kind of coming out of the different studies you guys have done in the last few years? Yeah, so traditionally we're very corporate um, organizations. I would say we're broadening that a little bit now. Um, higher ed's definitely an area where I think economically they're going to have to really start looking at their real estate. And I think we can be really helpful with that, knowing that there are different stakeholder groups, meaning students, faculty, staff, right? They all have to figure out how are we using our space in a hybrid world, no different than workplace. So and you probably understand their perspective uniquely. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I love it when we get to go back to higher ed. <laughs> like, like, yes, I get to more, see it from the, yeah, yeah, I get to see it from a, a different angle this time, but have experience there and still have great value and appreciation for students and that world. But macro trends, we're actually, we're seeing some really interesting ones right now. I would say first and foremost is this idea of, you know, hybrid workplace, the fact that most organizations are saying voluntary return, like you can come back, mm-hmm. we want you back, but we're not going to tell you when and how, Right. but please come please. back. <laughs> and so but people on a whole really aren't going back to what they were before. On average, people are coming back about three days a week, but when you get to pick and choose your days, it really dilutes yeah. the capacity. And so then a lot of people come back and they're like, well, my friends aren't here. It's quiet in the office. Andrew literally texted me yesterday and he was like, no one is here. It's so quiet. (laughs) It's 3.30 and I send this meme out that's Pablo Escobar from Narcos. He's like looking off into the distance, like very lonely. Like Like, that's my like go-to meme. That's like, no one's here. And it's just like me staring off or sitting there just like. But it is such a swing because Wednesday there's probably 25 people here. And then Thursday, you're the only one. Yeah, I'm an extrovert. I feed off others. I love a busy brokerage floor, trading floor, or just the energy. It just it just boosts me, you know? And so if I'm all by myself, I'm like... You're like, why am I not just back in my basement? Yeah. Exactly. Which is... <laughs> in my sweatpants. Yeah. Which is still depressing, like even depressing. Like I struggle working from home. I really do. Yeah. I can. I can force myself, but it's not my preferred. I like working from home, which this is a trend we're seeing actually. So I'm kind of indicative of the norm in this way. But if I really need to focus and, you know, perform some sort of analysis or maybe I need to write... If I can go home and really, you know, hunker down, hunker down for two to four hours and control the interruptions, right? That's a big key of being home. You have more control over your environment. I can, you know, maybe I don't answer that call right now. And nobody's like interrupting me from Mm -hmm. across the room saying, hey, two men, you know, need your help here. Um, But on the other hand, I recognize my part of my job is to be a resource to the rest of my team, which is what we traditionally call collaboration. A lot of people call that collaboration, Mm -hmm. right? But if we think about it as a resource, right, I need to be available for people to ask me questions and also usually for things to move on in terms of projects. I need to ask somebody else for help sometimes too. Right. Hey, where are we at? What's the status? What's the deadline? Right. And so when that becomes asynchronous, we have a lot of starts and stops and waiting time. Right. And so inefficiency increases. And so this is, it's this idea of how do we, how do we do both? Mm -hmm. And so then I think a lot of decisions are very binary. Well then work from home for this and collaborate in the office. But we're finding is that that's impossible. I don't know how many of you, you know, have a day where it's just one or the other. It's very rare for me to have a day where it's just a focus day. 
And I'd love to say that I can create boundaries where that happens, but it will not never, it works. It will never yeah. happen. It's not how it works. So, um, so what's interesting is people are looking for functionality when they go back to their workspace. And then they're like, well, it's easier for me to take a Zoom call at home. Or I go into the office and I'm still on Zoom because the other people I need aren't there. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea of it's not functioning. Behaviors have changed. Right. But the workspace hasn't. We're coming mm-hmm. back to the same old workspace we had that we yeah. had. Well, and I think there's an element of like each person's schedule is personalized. It's not around this concept of like, okay, between this time and this time, I should be generally at the office right? Nine to five, whatever, you know, you want to call it. And, and, and if you, all of a sudden you take that away and then people can personalize it, people's lives in general, everyone lives different lives. Yeah. You know, and I think that's probably the biggest challenge is how do you mesh those yeah. together? And for organizations, I think, you know, if I think about being Mr. CEO, which mm-hmm. I am not, but who knows, maybe I'll get unlucky one day and get tapped to be that the, the straw, the top of the pyramid. But I think, it's tough when you think about that because if you're like, well, personalization, that's a mess. How do I, you know, like yeah. the personal life is bleeding more into the work life and it's not as sterilized. Mm-hmm. So it's messy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So messy. You know? And you know, it, it starts becoming this personal autonomy. If I make everything, every decision with myself in, in mind and not, you know, the organizational whole, it, it really gets tricky because now you have what I call the wild west where everybody's kind of moving in different directions, but you know, it is, I'll use Doris as an example. We are there for a common goal and a common mission in successfully completing our projects and doing really great research mm-hmm. and quality, but then also being with each other. We like each other generally. And so we, we have a very flexible workplace, but that doesn't mean that there aren't guidelines where, you know, you work from home two days a week in the office three days a week, but there are certain days or times where we say, okay, we really want everybody in the office for this meeting. Mm -hmm. Or can you switch your work from home day and having a lot of communication around who is where, when. Right. And I think that's really important because that's where you create some of that connectivity and the energy. It's not when everybody is kind of doing their own thing. It's when we all come together cohesively. And so for different organizations that functions differently. We had a client earlier this year that they have a all company meeting on Fridays mm-hmm. and it's usually on Zoom or Teams. And so their own people said, well, why don't we just switch those to in-person and do something fun before or after that? Right. So mm-hmm. kind of like the Oreo, you sandwich yeah. some of the work <laughs> with some of the fun. Now it feels not organic or not spontaneous, which is what we're trying to get to. But you know, that doesn't always work. Right. Yeah. Right. So we have to, you know, put up some bumpers or some guardrails to say, okay, we're all at least make sure we're on the same highway going in the same direction. Right. Yeah. What I've seen some reports and maybe you guys have done some research on this. You know, there was right after the pandemic kind of impacted everybody. There was like a lot of studies that came out and said productivity went through the roof and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then now I'm seeing some reports like, oh, productivity's dropping. Yeah. And I'm curious to get what you guys have done, research, and maybe questions from clients about that is yeah. what is really the trend there? Yeah. It's a really are we getting less productive? Fantastic question. I got slightly lambasted about this. Uh, so I am publishing an article in the corporate real estate journal here soon. And I was talking about productivity. 
and how generally productivity is measured quantitatively as an output. Mm -hmm. But we as humans are not necessarily like stamping parts, right? Yeah, not in the modern world. Yeah, so it's harder to measure what exactly productivity is, right? You could potentially measure my productivity by the number of emails I answer, but that does not necessarily mean that I'm being productive as a whole. Right. Right. Or the people that are professional meeting goers. Yeah. I'm in meetings all day. Yeah. I'm very productive. I'm on calls all day. Is my green bubble on? Right. 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 How many hours are you available? (laughs) Yeah. If If you're available more, does that mean you're more productive? Right. This is just a really hard thing to quantitatively measure. And so qualitatively, though, what we started doing was defining what productivity means to the individual. Okay. So here's what I think is fascinating. People say I am more productive when I work from home because I'm able to check more tasks off my task list, Hmm. right? It's this individualized productivity that is measured individually, right? So if I've got 30 things, 10 of them might be emails. One of them might be a five hour long, you know, analysis. I need to do whatever it is, but as long as I'm checking those things off, I feel productive. Productive. Yeah. Yeah. But what we're measuring at an organizational level as productivity is really the sum of many parts. Yeah, of course. Right? And so we talk about this often in in terms of little p productivity versus big p productivity. So little p productivity is when I say I feel productive and I am productive on the little p. Okay. But big p productivity is like at an organizational level, how are we doing? Right. Are we hitting our goals? Are we hitting our metrics? How are our finances, right? All of these different things that we use to measure where's our profitability? What's our time to whatever? How many, you know, what's our quality control, right? We have tons of quantitative metrics at an organizational level. And that takes strategy. That takes meetings. That takes, you know, Mm -hmm. innovation. It takes creativity. So it takes all of these other pieces that create a bigger P productivity. And so what we try to do when we're talking to leaders is really start to narrow down on what we mean by productivity. And are we talking about individualized or organizational and start really getting into the nuance of that? Because then I think what happens is we realize we're coming from two different ends Right. Of conversation using one word. Yeah. Well, and I think depending on where you are in the organization, you know, think about a traditional hierarchy. If you're at the top, you're probably concerned about big P because that's how you're graded. For sure. That's your scorecard. That's your scorecard. Right. That's what you're watching. But if you're towards the bottom, you're the only thing you can probably control is little P. Right. You know, right. It rolls up into the little P's into the big P. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the reality is, is I think, you know, there's leaders that are looking at big P going, hmm. And I don't know if the data, I haven't found any data that talks about that disconnect. There's some surveys where CEOs have said, hey, I feel like we're less productive than we were before using the big P as an analogy. But I also feel like there's been a tremendous amount of employee uprising around small P. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think what's happening is we're not talking about the nuance and how maybe your individual contributions roll up into that big P Mm -hmm. and how, so we often actually are seeing this in terms of collaboration, right? A lot of organizations are saying, come in to collaborate. But when you view your job as being the doer to check your items off your task list, and you don't necessarily see meetings as a large portion of your job function or your job role, then it starts to create, again, that 
tension or the conflict where, well, this isn't part of my job. Well, it is. Yeah. If we're talking about efficiency and big P. And so how do you fit toward that big end goal, which really starts creating a different conversation than just kind of stamping your job part. Yeah. It's difficult to track and measure on a consistent basis. Yeah. You know, impossible. And each company is going to be very different in how they look at that. And a lot of, you know, traditionally, I would say a lot of people measure it by John Smith and his seat eight hours a day. He's doing his job. I can see him and therefore I know what he's doing. And so I think we're really struggling because of the fact that it's about, it has to be more so, I want to say it even has to be less quantitative. I know statisticians saying this, but I think it's more about the big, I, I do not care if you go to your doctor's appointment and you, you know, I want you to be there for your kids and your dogs and your plants and right. (laughs) I want you to feel like a whole human. Right. And if our you know, if our big P, if our profit and our pipeline's full and we're doing quality work and we're not seeing any, mm-hmm. then why change it? Yeah. Right? Why find a problem where it doesn't exist? It's kind of this idea of trust first, yeah. follow with accountability after. Yeah. I was going to say, you're going to have to put a little bit more faith in your employees that they're they're getting the job done, yeah. that you need them to get done. Not only the faith, I think the other part of it, the tough part about it is the accountability. Right, right. right. That's the tough part of management. Yeah. And here's the thing. You don't want to make your space like coming into the office a punishment. Right. So it's not like, well, if you're not getting your job done, then you have to come into the office five days a week. Right. That's really putting a terrible association yeah. worse than what you're trying. Your right. end goal is mm-hmm. right. So it, it is. It's now getting into how do you manage a, a remote workforce and how do you get us all? Yeah. You know, For example, together. like on our team, we declared we talked about it. We made a decision. We declared the D's, um, that Wednesday is our team day in the office. And it's a nice day for everyone to get in, collaborate. We normally go to lunch as just like a get together. Let's all see each other at least once a week. We can all count on people being in the office on Wednesday. So it's nice. But I know some people might be like, oh, it's Wednesday. I got to go in. <laughs> Hopefully not. Well, there might be one. There's always one. <laughs> There's always one. That's, okay, <laughs> That's true, right? Yeah. There's always going to be a group of people that just don't care, right? Yeah. yeah. One way or the other. Yeah. When based on the studies, you know, you work with a company, you give them all these great insights and they go, great. Thank you, Doris. Go out and make a bunch of changes. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of times you come back. Yeah. What has moved the needle in this post COVID era with, okay, Doris gave reports, Hey, Mr. Company or Mrs. Company go do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. They probably do most of them or some of them. Very rarely. I do. I imagine they do every single one. Yeah. Right. No. But what, what's the follow-up and what's been working so to speak? Yeah. So I would say two things. One, communicating what you're not doing, if you're not doing it right. And the why communicating what change you are making and why. So usually we're brought in, we identify the challenges that exist. And then from within the organization, we crowdsource solutions, right? So we give an action plan that says, here are the things your people are identifying, not only that they need, but also how to solve for those challenges, right? And we do it in a really high-touch, engaging manner. The worst thing you can do is then let that fall off a cliff. So we give you a really great runway to then communicate toward this document to make change, to reinforce it. Some of it's behavioral, right? Mm-hmm. So you got to make the behavioral change sometimes. Sometimes those are hard 
behavior changes to make. Sometimes it's policy change, but then communicating it back to, I think that's our value prop is that we've got, you now have all of the data you need to make whatever decision and then to communicate it out to your organization. Yeah. So it really, it isn't one size fits all. Like here's the, the best thing. It's so individualized to the organization, but now you have a complete communication plan and right. you've engaged people. And so as they see this change, they know the why. They know the why. And that's so important. For and employees. they know that it's coming from their own voice, mm-hmm. right? Oh, they're giving us all this new tech because we talked about not being able to Zoom, whatever it is, right? right? In a way, it sounds like everyone's work schedule is getting personalized, right? But even the company's kind of having to get personalized solutions and implement them, right? So it's yeah. it's almost like the days of old where, hey, you just kind of followed what other companies were doing and just kind of like, well, all right, this is what company X is doing or our competitor is doing. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you kind of go, yeah, that may not be the right answer. And you Got have to it. kind of actually ask, probably get some tough answers and then adapt to that. It seems like that's kind of becoming the new path where everyone almost has a customized path yeah. for their end solution. Yeah. That's fascinating. What, what other things, I guess, that are coming out in these employee surveys about barriers to returning to the office. You know, what else, what are the big kind of top three, so to speak, when yeah. people say, is it is it the physical work environment? Is it amenities, lack of yoga classes and dog insurance being reimbursed? Or- yeah, no, I, I would love to say that if you put in a coffee maker, they will return, but <laughs> most people have that coffee maker at home. They've yeah. got a really nice Keurig. And so it's not necessarily amenity spaces. Actually, statistically, we've seen this year, amenity spaces are at an all-time low when they come into the office. People, when they're returning to the office, are returning very pointedly for work purposes. Yeah, they're not sitting there just wasting nine hours a day and saying, you know what, I'm going to go do this yoga class at three o'clock that's in the yoga room downstairs at our corporate headquarters. No. They're like, I'm here for five hours and I'm going to go finish the day from home, right? Right. That's what they're doing. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm going to go take that yoga class that's right around the corner from my house. Because I've signed up for that during the pandemic and I really like the instructor. Right. Right. Or I'm going to do all my break stuff on the days that I'm working from home when I come into the office. I'm going to access the resources I need from the office. I'm going to do all my printing. I'm going to do all of my whatever it may be. Sometimes it's technical equipment and hardware that people need. Other people as a resource, right? It's very function-based, job function-based. So we're finding conference rooms, office spaces are all highly utilized, even if they're not assigned to you, let's say. People will pop into an office space because of the fact that you can take a Zoom call and not have you know, distractions. That's Mm -hmm. the biggest complaint is coming back to an open office, which was the trend 2016 to 2020, Mm -hmm. right? Open office spaces, low cube walls, benching, all of that. And now we're all on Zoom calls. It's too loud. It's too loud. Can you please mute yourself? Can you mute yourself? We can hear Andrew Urban in the background. (laughs) I always get called out. Yeah, you do. On everyone's call. I feel like there's definitely some sort of someone's out to get me spreading these nasty, (laughs) nasty rumors. About how loud I am. I'm I just sorry. don't understand. How does it. that make you feel? It makes me feel, I don't know. I, I, you started a podcast because of it. Yeah, exactly. That's right. I said, <laughs> now you, know you got to an outlet to talk to him more. Yeah, I know. I, I don't talk <laughs> enough. <laughs> I spend, on average, close to six hours a day on the phone from That's... about 7 a.m. till people stop picking up my phone calls. Wow. Easily. But as you were just saying, as someone who kind of sits catty corner behind him, 
can't be on conference calls at his desk anymore because he's like, I can't concentrate because you're next to me and Andrew's in the background. I'm like, yeah, sorry. That is not <laughs> a unique situation. No. Yeah, I mean, we all are on different types of calls. You know, it's interesting because Zoom calls or web conferencing, it creates noise, right? It mm-hmm. creates a sound and then you've got multiple people and the quality of your call goes way down because generally most of us don't have wonderful tech equipment and mics that are directional. Right. Picking up our voices, right? <laughs> right. So that is the number one complaint and the biggest barrier to returning because it's easier and better quality if I just do this from my home. Well, yeah, because you can go in a room and lock your dog out, lock your kids out. I mean, we've heard of people working from their closets. I mean, we've heard some crazy things. Basements. Basements. Yeah, yeah, that's where I work. Yeah. That's awful. Yeah. But I, I I hear that. And then, you know, all these naysayers around me that say I'm loud, I just think they just, you know, they just need to talk louder. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But the other thing is, you know, we've all been on the Zoom where someone's at home and the dog's barking, their landscapers are there. So it's kind of like, to me, I'm like, yeah, I, I, I understand that. But at the same time, I'm like, BS. So it's less about... um well, but they don't have to drive around and that's all about ah, them, right? So they're, they're, they don't have to drive to. That's the kind of my next question I want to get to. Yeah. Location, convenience, that factor. Yeah. I'm intrigued by this too. I don't have the answer yet. <laughs> I wish I did. I'm really intrigued by, so I just this week was starting to notice. So trend wise from our data, we're seeing Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday are the higher days, right? It kind of yeah. looks like a normal curve. Mm-hmm. In office. In office, yeah. yeah. And I'm noticing that with traffic. I do too. Like the Wednesday morning traffic downtown was terrible. It's awful. It's awful. And so- Wednesday. Today was a breeze minus, you know. So Megan, here's the data. I can send this to you. It's from Basking. Basking is a Internet of Things kind of occupancy tracking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday. Wednesday is 56%. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah. You're right. So- And our data is showing similar things, but more because of the fact that we've seen on average three days a week. I don't know if that's up there. Yeah. Thursdays are kind of two to three days a week. 67%. Yep. So you throw in a Thursday, certainly not a Monday, definitely not a Friday. Oh, yeah. Don't make me go to the office on a Friday. Um, Not me personally. I go in most days, but uh, because I love it. Yeah. Kind of like you. I like being around people. I like my job. I like my office. I like the people I work with. Yeah. They're my friends. Right. And for me personally, there's a boundary between who I am at home. I at least try to make this right. I could become a workaholic real quick, but I like to be mom Megan at home. Right. And then use my commute time to switch that into (laughs) working Megan. And then, you know, try and leave the stresses of work in my car when I go back and transition, right? So I use that time as transition time, which is important to me personally. But yeah, I think what's interesting is this, we've talked about hub and spoke before. We've talked about trends moving to suburban, you know, Carmel's here in Indiana is crazy how urban feeling it's starting to become and how the traffic is now emulating that, right? We're seeing in the leasing data, I mean, 2X the volume, of transactions in the suburbs and downtown. It used to be almost on parity 50, 50 pre COVID two X. What are your, um, those are what five year generally leases, 10 year, five 
I mean, generally smaller tenants, five to seven years, bigger tenants, 10 years, some 15. Yeah. So that trend means that it has, you know, longevity to it. Yeah. No, it's, it's just really interesting. No one's signing a one year lease. Right. And so, you know, that whole natural shift has a long-term implication that can't just be corrected. And the other interesting thing that came out of this data that I found particularly fascinating just because our practice is so global was peak occupancy rates for large and mega cities is lower than small and mid-sized cities. And the hypothesis, right? And I'll just, here it is. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll scroll over. So medium cities are about 50%, micro and small, you know, three yeah. to 1 million or 38%. But then if you look at large and mega cities, single digit occupancies. That's incredible. Single digit. So we're not talking a difference of one or two X, right? Yeah. And so the difference between a Detroit occupancy and a New York City occupancy are miles apart statistically. And I feel that that's interesting, but I think it goes back to the convenience. I think about my lifestyle when I lived on the East Coast. Paige, you've lived in some major cities as well. And I was talking to my optometrist today because I hadn't got my prescription update. I wanted to order new glasses. And so I was at Moody's downtown in Salesforce. And we were talking and he asked me, oh, are you from Indy? And I you know, gave him the whole spiel. And he was like, yeah, I'm not from here originally. And we we're going into it. And he's like, you know, you must have seen a really big lifestyle shift. I was like, yeah, I'm not sitting on a Metro North train for an hour and then Grand Central and then walking five blocks and, you know, like just that hour and a half trudge. And then, oh yeah, what time the train is leaving? Is there an express train or is it a local? And like that whole, like, okay, go to Grand Central. It's at rush hour. Try to find a seat on the train. Try not to be like crammed in there with some guy that stinks and that, you know, and do that five days a week. Yeah. Right. right yeah. Or when I was driving around the boroughs and that I had a car and I'd be like, okay, what time is it? Oh crap. I'm trying to get back to Connecticut from the Bronx. And it's like, oh God, shit. I-95 is locked up. Do I go, you know, around up through upstate New York? And then so you do that whole thing and you go, I get why that occupancy is much lower mm-hmm. because most people don't live three blocks from their, their office. No. And so I'm curious to see, and then even for downtown Indianapolis, you know, Megan, we've talked about this before. We're seeing significantly lower leasing activity. Yes. Well, and it's interesting. We're seeing kind of bigger names leaving. Yeah. Or downsizing materially. Or yeah, downsizing. And it's interesting because I actually don't. You guys are downtown. Yeah. We're, we're right downtown. We're not planning on leaving. I love it down here. Yeah. But I don't notice a huge difference in terms of, let's say, safety or some of these things that maybe you hear about on media. Like, I don't feel more unsafe than I ever have before. Or I don't. I, it's quieter. It's a lot quieter. And it's there's a lot. so much quieter. Um, I would say lunch spots are diminishing a little bit. Yep. yep. Some people choose to be open Thursday, Friday. Yeah. When Wednesday, clearly everyone should be open on Wednesdays. <laughs> we can tell you the days. Yeah. yeah, yeah the data, should, is yeah, the data says. Yeah. So, and I think right now, what I'm noticing is we're in such a reactionary mindset. We've mm-hmm. been reacting since 2020. I think it's, it, we've been reacting to, you know, obviously a pandemic, to variants, to, you know, 
social unrest to labor markets to supply chains, right? Mm -hmm. It's coming from all angles. And so I think leaders are like, I don't know what to do, but I guess I don't want to piss off my anyone. (laughs) I really don't want to piss anybody off. So where do you, they want to be? Where do they live? And I want to be near that to make them happy. And maybe they'll come into the office if they don't have. So I can definitely see qualitatively how, how the mindset is there that we would go, that things would be shifting suburban. But what I'm wondering is what that means for residential. And then if that swings you a little bit, because I I think historically trends have been, you know, moving to suburban, building that. And then, you know, now there was a shift more to urban areas Mm -hmm. here, aughts and then. Yeah. And if you look at the occupancy data for multifamily, I mean, it's still doing really strong in urban cores. Yeah. New York City rents are at the highest peak ever for one bedroom in Manhattan. Yeah. Right? Because no one wants to go to work. They all want to work from home, so they want to have nice homes. Well, that's that's the thing. I was actually in the car the other morning, and I was thinking about, you know, when I go through old office buildings, you know, just having done this for a, for a little while, I'm not a 30-year vet like some of our partners that, <laughs> you know, I mean, or like RJ, who started yeah. in the business in like 82, or, you know, <laughs> they've seen the arc, but... um you know, just in working with corporate enterprises with long, long assets and big campuses. And, you know, what's interesting is you saw the impact of how life and function impacts design, mm-hmm. you know, and you go into certain office buildings in certain areas and there's certain quirks or configurations because that's how people worked and lived. Right. Yeah. No different than with houses. So yes. my wife uh, and, and I don't know if this is like a, a, a wife thing, but she is on Zillow constantly. So am I. <laughs> I am not. Oh, yeah. No, I, I'm not saying there's a stereotype, but I'm like every guy I know is like wife's like, hey, so she sent me another house again. <laughs> I don't know why. Well, I don't know. What you send me is. houses. My wife sends me I, houses. I'm like, oh, tell your wife's like this. I'm like, I don't know why. <laughs> and, and it's funny. She sent me this great house on uh, Central Avenue, uh, like 43rd and Central. Yeah. Right. Not far from St. Joan of Arc, where we're parishioners. And I looked at the house and it's very quaint. But I looked at it, I said, it's just not, it's way too small, like the rooms and the way they're configured for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And I thought about it and I've been thinking about this a lot is like, how, you know, one day, 40 years from now, you know, my kids will be buying a home from the era of, was built yeah. in 2020 or 2021 yeah. or 2022, right. where they go, why did this guy put in this huge home office? Yeah. Yes. Right. And like mm-hmm. people question, like, why did they, cause I, you go into houses from different areas and go, <laughs> why did they put the kitchen like this? Yeah. It's like that, those stamps on the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Why was that a thing? Oh, the texture. Yes. Well, it's, it's because it was like an upgrade too. <laughs> yeah. It was in vogue. And the other thing is contractors really pushed it back then because it makes mudding and finishing the ceilings much easier. That's where you see all the waves. I was going to say, and you don't have, is it like you can cover up shoddy work. Oh yeah. Probably. Yeah. But trying to fix it or like match uh, yeah. the stencil is nearly impossible. Yeah. Well, there's why wallpaper everywhere. Yeah. Remember that? My mom used to I, It's coming back. I, I have quite a few wall. Yeah. You've been walls. pushing the wallpaper. Wallpaper. And, and I think in, in small quantities, everything's fine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I remember like in the early nineties, my mom, when we moved back to Cleveland from Pittsburgh, I mean, they wallpapered everything short of the ceiling and the floor. Everything yeah. had a wallpaper pattern and they used to be yeah. wallpaper stores. And as a kid, we used to have to go exist. there. I know, but they were <laughs> like, I think those still yeah, are but around. They were prevalent. 
Like it yeah. was, you know, and that fell out of Vogue, yeah. you know, or mauve and taupe and all these like colors. Or remember the textured paint with the sponge? Yeah, yes. yeah sponge paint. We or had like borders. A red dining room with yes. gold sponge paint. Gold sponge paint. <laughs> what? <laughs> red and gold. <laughs> Christmas dinner. <laughs> but I do think there's going to be a point 40 years, 30 years from now, where somebody looks at these homes that with these huge home offices all tricked out and goes, what the heck were they thinking? Yeah. Yeah. You know, no, right. Everything's yeah. in trends. Yeah. No different than office furniture. Right. Yeah. We're also in the trend of the year or the trend of the every five years. So it'll be curious to see kind of in retrospect what shakes out. Yeah. It's interesting. So I work with a group of students at Purdue and to start our semester, I always take them to lunch and they, I asked them, I took a poll of just our little group and I was like, what? you guys want to work in an office someday? You want to work from home? What you're you doing? You're such a statistics teacher. I am. <laughs> and they were, I took a poll. You were filling it out. And you ran it was just raised hands. Over, yeah, right. Yeah. You adjusted our square. There's a 0.88. It's a strong correlation for this variable. Well, actually, they all raised their hand that they wanted to go into an office. And they were talking about spending two years either online. In college. Can you in imagine? In college. Or, you know, pretty much holed up in their dorm rooms, you know, they could get takeaway meals and stuff. So they were talking about how that experience has really, right. It's created opportunity for a certain echelon of people, but it's really been prohibitive to others. Right. And so I could see, I think it's really interesting to see like, not just the young workers that exist right now, but those who are have been in college and are graduating what they're looking for in the workplace, mm-hmm. because I actually do think that they value the idea of working together to solve a problem or to study for an exam. And, you know, I can't figure out this. Can you help me? Sure. Here's the code I used. Right. And so it's this idea right. of collaborating is so huge for students and, and how they were like, yeah, no, I want to go, I want to go experience What's the, the stereotypical, yeah, the yeah. stereotypical workplace and meet friends and maybe, you know, live in a city and have some of that experience. So, yeah, the idea that you me. would go to college and then graduate and then work from some small apartment where you have three roommates uh, you're all eating you, ramen. Yeah, and right. you're all eating ramen. <laughs> I mean, the, the, that collective experience, right, is so formational in our lives. Yeah, I, it, it'll, it'll be curious because I, I, I do think we're not to the solution yet. No, that's the best part. We're just starting. Yeah. The experiment. I love it. So when companies are rolling out hybrid, and this is kind of one of the last questions before we get into all the questions we ask all our guests. Okay. Hope you're prepared. I did not <laughs> study These for are this not, part. That's okay. A it's a pop student. quiz. Yeah. Don't worry, it's a pop quiz, but you'll do fine. <laughs> I think we all admit some degree of hybrid is here to stay. Yeah. What it looks like in five years, 10 years, nobody knows. Not even worth predicting right now. No. Because we're just guessing. Yeah. But as companies are implementing this, what are the things that you've seen them do really right? And what are the things you've seen them do really wrong? Okay. Really right. You got to put structure around it and communicate. You got to communicate successes and failures. Hey, we tried this. It's not working. We're going to adjust, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of might not get it right every time the first time. And that's okay. But communicate that so that it doesn't feel like whiplash. So leading from that into the biggest challenges are having expectations that you are not communicating. You're just like holding them close and you're like, okay, I'm going to try this experiment. Come back to the office. I'm not going to tell you when. I'm not going to tell you why. I'm not going to tell you how. 
but I want you to do it. Go. And then it doesn't work out the way you had hoped it would. Yeah. Right. It's like, that's okay. So talk to your people, say, here's our goal. Here's why we have some people here who really like each other. So let's get together. Or these certain types of meetings, we think it's really important. We have these in person or like just be strategic and then really communicate that and make sure it's like consistent. Yeah. Consistent communication around that. Right. What are they not done well? Do you think, you know, putting guns to people's head and is that not the right path? I think. Because we're seeing some of that creep back in with the labor market and some sorts of industries, right? Yeah. Elon Musk literally two nights ago put a letter out to Twitter employees that remained after the layoffs and said, you guys are coming in the office now. And if you don't have, have a problem with it, you can leave. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I think a decision is better than indecision. Mm. So I, there is a part of me that really respects not Elon Musk necessarily just, (laughs) but, (laughs) but the idea that you make a decision, you can talk to it Mm -hmm. and then you follow through with that. Mm -hmm. I really feel like indecision is the indecision with expectations, right? I have expectations of how I want this to work, but I'm not going to tell anybody what I want or why I want it or how, which is what I just said. I think (laughs) also the, the biggest failures, and this is really from a, probably speaking from a Doris value standpoint is not listening internally to Mm -hmm. your people and what's good for your culture and what's necessary for your business. So when you react and you're a small you know, Midwestern organization, small Midwest size, and then you're making decisions that Elon Musk is making for Twitter, (laughs) that is not going to be a comparable parallel, right? So looking at trends and all of that to inform some of your decisions is okay, but really looking internal and making decisions that you think is best for your organization is hands down the best way to go for things right don't look at the googles and the twitters and yeah and that's the tough part right why as it well as a leader right i mean that causes you to be introspective it causes you to need to be humble causes you to need to listen and be empathetic towards others that's tough yeah that is the hard. that's the hard work it is yeah numbers aren't the hard work no though lots of people think they are numbers or cracking a whip isn't that hard in my opinion but having to listen and maybe hear some tough things and maybe learn about yourself a little bit. That's tough. And then actually changing, that's even tougher. Yeah. All right. So we got a few questions we ask all our guests. I did not give these to you in advance on purpose. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I see. I see the evil glint. I do. Um, name a book you've read in recent history that's had a huge impact on you. It can be anything. It doesn't have to be work related. It could be a fiction novel. Okay. I'm a big reader. So the most recent is the, what I'm going to go for and it's lessons in chemistry. Oh my gosh. Amazing lessons book. In chemistry. Yeah. Fiction. Okay. It's about a woman, a female chemist in the fifties and sixties trying to make it in a misogynistic world. Just fantastic. Some of the conversations she had in there, I was like earmarking. I was taking to work. I was like, we have to talk about this. Uh, <laughs> it was really great. There, there are some poignant moments in the book that were really thought provoking for me. Interesting. Oh. So, what, I mean, did it change your perspective on different things? I mean, I'll, I'll let you answer that. I kind of asked an open-ended question there. How did it change your perspective? I Okay. I'm trying to think if it changed my perspective or gave me more appreciation for like things have changed. 
I've experienced quite a bit, especially in academia as a female statistician. I'm yeah. a minority in that world. Hugely. There's an <laughs> I know. I, would, I took a lot of stats class, you know, yeah. quantitative economics undergrad. Yeah. I don't think there was classes I there was no women. Yeah. In you know, the late two thousands. When I was reading your bio, it made me laugh because I took stat I went to Purdue yeah. and I took statistics at Ivy Tech because I did not want to take it at <laughs> Purdue. I say this often. I was like, I was not your instructor. No, well, I, I didn't even try. And I was like, nope, I'm <laughs> no. just going over here. <laughs> so I think what it was is an appreciation for what has come before and the fact that I'm allowed to, you know, break some barriers and, you know, break the mold a little bit and be the unexpected. And, and it's, you know, I can have a bank account under my own name and I wouldn't have to, I can publish under my own name. Right. Some yeah. of that, it's like, that's a huge stride just in recent history, very recent history where that was not possible, you know? So you'd have to publish if you were in academia under your male colleague's name. Yeah. Or M. Tuman. Or just M. Leave Tumen. it as a, as a mystery. Big mystery, right? Mark. It could be Mark or yeah. Matt, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> Is Mr. Tuman there? Is Mr. Tuman. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. So that was just the most recent that I've been talking about but. what's in my amazon card what's in your oh i said oh awesome yeah let me know what you think i will yeah now okay what are you streaming right now netflix hbo what's what's fun what are you hooked on and it can be it embarrassing can be anything oh i am a big okay so to be completely honest this year i have really gotten into legal analysts on youtube <laughs> Oh, <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. All yeah. right. So, tell me more. Like I watched every single hour of the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Really? Every hour. All. Okay. Oh my God. I love it. I loved the like legal so are you team analysis. Johnny? I am team Johnny. I think a lot of people are team Johnny. Okay. Why? Why are you guys team Johnny? I didn't listen to it, but well, we have an expert here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, we should have just done 45 minutes yeah, on this. Yeah. I can come back. <laughs> I could talk about up. We're doing, we're doing it. We're breaking it down play yeah. by play. Yeah. I, well, one, you can certainly tell that he paid more for his lawyers. Let, let me like, that's the asterisk around this, but his lawyer law team was amazing. They just, their strategy was great. They knew how to ask the right questions. They, it was just incredible. And you could see how their positioning and how they tell the story can affect the outcome. Mm-hmm. I mean, and her legal team was like a relative shit show, which was fun to watch. Sure. It was so fun to watch. Like one guy talked about his cat <laughs> and then it went, like I'm not trial? kidding during trial. Yeah. He was like, well, I mean, couldn't my cat type that? And like the witness on the stand is like, like what are you talking about? I haven't met your cat, but no, I'm pretty I doubt sure. it. I doubt Maybe. it. <laughs> um, and then one, at one point he objected himself. He was like objection. Oh, I mean, no, no objection. It was just, <laughs> it was really funny. That is funny. So I just follow different trials. Like the next ones. What's the next one? Yeah. The Murdoch trial in South Carolina. It's in I've January. heard about this. Yes. There was a thing I on my wait. favorite murder podcast. Yes. I listened to it. I was refinishing some cabinets recently. Yes. So they have a podcast that's called Murdoch Murders. Yes. Okay. And they've been following this for 
Yeah. So I just binged the whole podcast and now they're all coming to trial. So like literally this week, the banker is on trial. So I'm following that. And then Alec Murdoch goes January. Yeah. It's like my whole, she knows the date January. (laughs) Yeah. That's, I mean, it's fascinating. I I think there's a lot, I mean, it is amazing in this country. I mean, there is a bit of a correlation to how good of a lawyer and legal team you have and can afford. Yeah. Especially when, you know, the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp trial, a lot of ways it was a game of perception, right? I mean, in all your study, it was really about, there was facts, but it was the story and who could own and craft the story around those facts. Yes. It's kind of very similar to the OJ. I don't know if you've watched all that. Yes. But the OJ trial, and there were certain facts that if you look at it just on paper, you go, no way this guy's walking away. Yeah. But their legal team perception of the story, controlled the message, yep. distracted the jury from the facts, yeah. was able to to prevail. Yeah. Kind of fascinating. It's so fascinating. I love it. Does that bother you? I guess as a statistician where you get to a number, it's black and white to some extent. Now there's always gray area at analyzing data and you have to make inferences and there's, yeah. right? So Marsh I know it's not there. clean, but in general, right? Analytical mm-hmm. people like the idea of like, I run this program, I get a spit out an answer sometimes I have to interpret, but generally speaking, most things I can quantify to some extent in my world. Yeah. Do you think you're attracted to it because it, it kind of goes to that next level of like beyond the, just the facts. Yeah. I love it because of that. Cause I think, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been told there are lies, damn lies and statistics. Right. Sure. Have you ever heard that? Mm-hmm. So no, they didn't teach that. At they didn't. T- that's <laughs> like one of the. <laughs> she has the, a bunch of statistics. I have. I, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and so I think the thing about it is it all comes down to, to interpretation, right? There's always two ways you can interpret the numbers. Oh, hundred percent. That's and my job. And so, right. Yeah. You spin it. And so I think that's what I. Um, I was in a pitch recently for a property sale. And I mean, the, the truth was, is it's all about the narrative. Yeah. It's about the storytelling of the property and an income statement doesn't sell it. It's all about the narrative. And, you know, we had a great track record of crafting a narrative around properties that shouldn't have sold for what they sold for. Someone asked me, why did that sell for so high? And I said, narrative, the numbers were the numbers. Now we have to know those and be able to do those back and forth, but it's all about how you massage it and put the story around and sell the story yeah. to investors. Yeah. For us, it's all about, well, I can show you numbers, but then your follow-up question is going to be that why, right? So the quant gets you so, a certain piece of information, but the why is really the Yeah. And there's also leverage. the reason why there's hedge fund managers that can't beat their benchmark and still get money every year. I think I'm in the wrong job. like a weatherman that's the one job i'm like gosh you can be wrong all the time all the time (laughs) those stats are great (laughs) so so megan what other podcasts and music are you listening to yeah so let's see i mean today was 80s pop in the office and that was great murdoch murders is the podcast what other podcasts am i listening to Oh, I also love Dear Hank and John. What's that one? John Green, who wrote. Uh, oh the yeah, he's, in our a, stars. he's a he's an Arthur from Indianapolis. He my is. wife went to one of his book signings. Yeah, he's great. Turtles all the way down, and he's a 
you know, great oh, yeah. author and they've turned into movies. He and his brother have a really fantastic podcast where people write in questions and they answer them, but they just have a great banter. And, uh, you know, sometimes the answers are made up. Sometimes they're, you know, based in fact, but yeah, that's kind of my, yeah. That's great. So how, how do people learn more about Doris research? Uh, our website, dorisresearch.com. Email me, Megan with an H at dorisresearch.com. Megan with an H. Megan with and an obviously H. obviously can follow you on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Have you thought about setting up like a sub stack or something for all the interesting insights and data that you guys? I need to. Yeah. I'm getting into for 2023. We're in 22. <laughs> I'm like, I, so yeah, no, I want to get into some of the, you know, we do a lot of in internal organizational research and I want to start looking at trend-based, what are we seeing and what are some of the insights just for bits and pieces, kind of like we talked about today. Yeah. Right. Well, that's great. Well, Megan, thank you so much for coming oh on. Gosh. It's been a pleasure. I hope you had some fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Of I course. appreciate thanks it. Thanks for coming in. Yeah. This is crazy. First podcast. Thank you. Well, You're welcome. You great, uh, <laughs> <I> appreciate it. <laughs> thank you to our executive producer and audio wizard, Chris Spangle at leadersandlegends.net. Also, thank you to my co-host and producer, Paige O'Neill. And finally, thank you to Colliers International for providing us space to use as our recording studio in downtown Indianapolis. If you like what you heard, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to like or follow us on LinkedIn and YouTube at Urban Foundry Podcast.